Are you a small business owner or someone who has a real interest in building your own brand? Then deep dive into the UP Consulting Group's Business Building Bootcamp, the annual convention and training camp for entrepreneurial spirits. Join us this March 5 and 6 to discover how you can unlock your business potential. Based on the Youngblood column of the Philippine Daily Inquirer, this is the Youngblood Podcast. Stories written by the Filipino youth that inform, empower, and inspire. I'm your host, Leah Angela Shoko. Happy Halloween indeed because today we will be discussing We the Dying by Harvard med student Edward Christopher or Christie. Just kidding, we won't be talking about horror stories. What we will be discussing today is death and how we owe it to the dying to behold death with amazement, arguably even love, for how it teaches us to live the rest of our days. So how do you spend your days? My cardiologist professor asked our patient in an attempt to have an idea of his lifestyle habits. Our patient was 86 and generally healthy presenting himself only for a routine check of his pacemaker, placed the year I was born and functional ever since. He responded sullenly, I'm waiting for the Grim Reaper. The professor replied also suddenly, we all are. Outside, I thought hard about the patient's comment. My professor pointed to a small grayscale picture of a man on a photocopy of a newsletter. Do you know who that is? I had no clue, I told him. That's exactly my point, he continued. He was our chief, a great man. He died some years ago. My professor paused. That's how it is. You go through life and then you die. Maybe some people remember you. The young don't even know who you are. This was the first time that an attending physician had broached the topic of death with me, one seemingly so fundamental rather than antithetical to the profession of medicine. Indeed, delaying or easing death's coming is so much of what medicine does. When asked what I am learning in medical school, I always highlight the chronic awareness of mortality. Although I've grown in my understanding of medicine's many marvels, I've also grown in my cognizance of human frailty. A blood clot much smaller than a pea could end a life. This awareness of death has not launched me into existential stupor. In contrast, it has galvanized in me a strong drive to live. Patients who have gone deaf have taught me to listen to music with much more acuity. Patients who have lost the ability to walk give me strength to brave the next mile despite the cold Boston rain. It is clear to me that the day-to-day is more key than professional publication or professorship at the end of the road. Call it a certain urgency to live, one that makes it easier, indeed imperative, to shed a grudge, to be kind, to tell the people I love that I love them before I no longer can. I asked my professor how this fatalism influences his life. I learned to not take myself too seriously, he counseled. Don't worry about the petty things. In the end, one's whole life is petty. Therefore, you have to enjoy life. Fundamentally, I agreed with him. Although the development of hospice and palliative medicine indicates that medicine more broadly can accept death as part of its purview, in medical school, death's meaning beyond its being a break in life's biological processes is rarely discussed. We operate as if, as healthcare professionals, we can stave off death forever. When one treatment fails, we we reach for another. When a patient dies, his name simply falls off the census, drifting away like browning leaves. 
In avoiding the material of death, we miss out on some of the most intimate lessons our patients can share. It's key that this conversation is opened, as my professor did for me. We in medicine are granted the privileged awareness of the various, sometimes terrifying ways that death can come to us all. Yet death often happens behind a veneer of crisp, white hospital sheets, shielding even those most physically close to it from its sights and sounds. And more critically, shielding us from its implications for the living. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke wrote of death. We know nothing of this going hence that so excludes us. We have no grounds for showing death amazement and love or hatred, since it wears the age-old mask of tragedy that's, that hopelessly contorts it. We cannot rid death of its tragedy and owe it to our patients to carry even a bit of that weight with them. Yet perhaps we owe it to the dying to behold death with amazement, arguably even love, for how it teaches us to live the rest of our days. Christie's essay was published last February 5, 2019, and today he joins me all the way from Boston as we talk about his time at med school, his thoughts on death, and his creative writing process. Welcome to the Young Blood Podcast, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Thanks for squeezing me in your tight schedule. I know how busy you can be. So since today is Halloween, it's kind of a special episode. I want to ask Chris, what would you bring on a zombie apocalypse? Like what weapon would you want to have and why? Oh, that's funny. Now that you ask it, um, I would say hydroxychloroquine because a fictional treatment should work for a fictional situation. Okay, so that thing basically doesn't treat anything. Like it's just something, but not really for... It doesn't work for COVID. It works for many other things. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, and for playing along. Interesting answer. Um, you talk about death in the middle of the Valentine's month, like the love month on February. Um, so it's interesting, like how it was published, you know, because some people think that the essays that get published on Young Blood are the ones that are relevant, they're up to date. And yet your essay is very personal and very out of the timeline of like, you know, the love month, February. So um, I just wanted to point that out, how the Young Blood editors really just pick the essays that don't necessarily have to be relevant or timely, but more so that are just really well-written. Well, I would argue that inextricably linked, no? Because the reason that people, well, I'll say one reason that people are probably generally averse to the idea of death is because it severs us from the things that we love, right? Whether those are individuals or ideas or time or, or places. So I think the strength of this emotion we call love actually is very much part and parcel of why death holds so much gravitas in our day-to-day -day living, if we let it. And it's just interesting how you wrote it, because personal anecdotes and then just your reflection, which really kind of made me think a lot, and I'm sure other readers also. So I want to know, how did you become the writer that you are today? Did you ever feel like you were born to be one? So absolutely not. I started kind of my, my intellectual journey, my my my. I guess, late teens, early 20s, as someone who was pretty quantitative, I dabbled with the idea of being in pure mathematics early in high school and I realized that, that my, my mind was not you know as good at math enough for that. 
Um, but I majored in biochemistry in college and thought that most of my kind of intellectual growth would be in the realm of the sciences. Um, and as someone in medicine, I thought that that would make sense. But I found that the more time I spend reading, and I credit my my sister primarily for being one of my strongest liter- literary influences and several other friends along the way, um, I found that there was so much truth that literature and writing captured in the world in ways that were different and in some senses better than than, than the quantitative uh, ways that I was kind of used to. Um, and it took me a while to kind of get around to accepting this, but truth can come in, in, in various forms, right? Like lit- literature and art are one way of capturing what we believe to be true and what we observe to be true in the world. And science and math are yet another way. And I think they're not all that different from from, from each other. And we'll, we'll happy to talk a bit about that um, later. But what I found was, I actually started writing in medical school, so pretty late, was that the experience of taking care of patients and entering their lives as a student and a provider um, exposed me to narratives every single day. A lot of medicine is teasing out stories from people. You know, what, what, led, what led to your chest pain, for example. But more importantly, like, what is the context within which this patient sees the provider now and, and what, what makes them seek care? And I found that those stories were incredibly interesting. One, interesting in their own right, and two, interesting because of how they can hide lessons that can influence how we choose to live. And I found that writing was a great way to tease out those lessons and to share them with with a wider audience. So you mentioned that in college, you were exposed to more literature. And I'm interested, what kind of book did you read that really pushed you to like writing and ultimately be a writer? What pieces of literature, what books, which writers made you believe that you could be a writer and a great one at that? I wouldn't say I'm a great writer. I would say I'm a decent writer. Um, But in terms of literary, early literary influences, I would say that Haruki Murakami was an early start. Um, I found that many of my friends in college really liked his style. And I enjoyed the magical realism because he got down and dirty with the metaphors that he was using. And I, I, I quite like that. I also like the translations um, and how they are pretty matter of fact in how they convey what seem to be pretty complex, what are pretty complex ideas. Um, but as I read a bit more, I actually started really enjoying some some older stuff. Um, Albert Camus is one of my favorite authors. Um, I actually encountered him in, in French class uh, when we read L'Etranger or The Stranger. Um, but I've read a lot of his other works and I find that his philosophy admixed with his prose appealed to me in how it grappled with kind of the darker things in the world, like death and dying. Um, another favorite author of mine is Gabriel Garcia Marquez um, for various reasons. One is I find that as a Filipino, there's a lot of affinity with the stories and metaphors and ideas that he uses being from Latin America and how a lot of the familial ties in his writing resounded with me and reminded me of, of, of stories I grew up around. But I also found that his engagement of magical realism, at least in my own interpretation, questioned the distinction between objective and subjective truth and said that, hey, maybe there are two sides of the same coin and that we could engage both at the same time. Hence the term, right? Magical and realism. And that somewhere in between, we can find our own version of truth. Um, so I, I really like like those authors. Um, in terms of poetry, I think it's quite obvious. I really like uh, Rilke. He's a kind of, I guess, metaphysical poet from the early 1900s from Bohemia, wrote in German, which I don't speak. But I find that his own intellectual journey as someone who seems to have really jumped right into the ideas of 
loss and death and loneliness appealed to me because he turned these things into something that was, if not positive, then at least beautiful. And it's interesting how you like them for how they stimulate you, the way you think and see the world. So I think that's what really great books and great authors do to us. I mean, that's what literature is supposed to do, right? I, I forget, I, this is not an original idea of mine, but I read this somewhere, like in New York Times or something, where the, where, where the, the writer had made a claim that good literature is something that resounds with us because it tells us that our experience of the world is not unique to ours and therefore we are not alone. And I think what I love about reading and ideas and, and art and literature is that you see that your experience of life is something that other people have experienced before as well and you can kind of communicate with them. Um, one of my favorite thinkers is Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a uh, post-enlightenment um French philosopher, scientist who lived and wrote at the cusp of what seems to have been a tumultuous intellectual time where people in Western Europe were realizing that this idea of reason in opposition to faith was taking charge and people didn't really know how to deal with it. They said, oh, wow, we could look at the stars now and realize that heaven is not in the clouds. Where is it? And they had to kind of revamp how they conceptualized the world. But Blaise Pascal, in his book Pensee, which is Thoughts, it's his diary, talked about how he found that he was stuck between two pairs of infinity. One pair of infinity in time, where there's an infinity of time behind him and an infinity of time ahead of him, um, and two infinities in space. Infinity in terms of largeness and in terms of smallness. And he found that in being stuck in that abyss, he was afraid and he was in awe. And I find that in, as someone who kind of thinks about those things too, that there is a certain camaraderie between me and you know people who like to think about these things and, and people who've written about them in the past. And I think it's there's some reassurance in realizing that we are not the first to grapple with these ideas. Um, and just going back to what you said about that New York Times essay about how writers, especially personal essayists, transform these little experiences that they have into general experiences that most people could relate to. I think what makes essays, like your essay, strike a chord, the its readers, is the fact that they're personal and that the most personal are the most universal. Like, the more personal you get, and the more detailed your description of that feeling, of that experience is, the more it will kind of be understood by the readers, the listeners, or the audience with which you share that piece. Mm -hmm. So that's just very interesting. And you mentioned that you're drawn to thinkers, like deep thinkers, Blaise Pascal. I only know him for computers. Like I remember studying about him. I didn't know that he was a writer. Um, and you know, philosophical at that. So I want to know, why do you think you're drawn to those kind of ideas and those kind of writers? Do you think it's because of your upbringing or did it just kind of happen when you were in college? Like like what happened to you when it comes to writing? That's an interesting question, a tough one. Um, so when, when I wear my research hat, um, we are careful about invoking causality and saying that something cause another thing and that's a whole different kind of argument so i will not necessarily attribute cause to any of these things but maybe more associations um and i think part of it is in medicine i have seen a lot of pretty real stuff the things that we see are people at people suffering at some of the worst times of their lives um, I mean, it depends what part of medicine one enters, obviously, and like 
you know, obstetrics, there's a lot of joy with, with, with giving birth, but for, um, but for, for a lot of what we do, we, we, we actively engage people who are suffering, who are afraid, who are facing mortality. Um, and I find that, I find that it is important to consider those things and that it's given me a lot of kind of intellectual satisfaction and curiosity to engage those ideas. Um, and so it was more kind of the exposure to pretty rich stories in medicine that that got me thinking about these things. But I think prior to that even um, was a religious upbringing. I find that growing up in the Catholic Church in the Philippines gave me a lot of material to think about in terms of being willing to talk about death and dying and end times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of that was being made to defend my beliefs in college. Um, many of my best friends were staunch atheists, are staunch atheists. And um, being asked to say or to share why I believe or chose to believe or what proof there was for any faith was challenging, but also intellectually really, really stimulating. Um, and in reading more about how other people have dealt with this, I find that there's so much to be discovered and there's so much to be dissected in the same way that some people can be interested in the, I don't know, the workings of the brain, which tangentially I also am. I find that I find that in thinking about death and dying and the end times and how that can influence our life um, is also really incredibly interesting. Um, one One more point to add is that we can either go through life just experiencing things and not thinking about anything and or we could pause and think and say wait what is this what are we learning from this what is this trying to teach us what can be drawn what truths can be parsed out from from each experience that we that we receive and i think if we choose to engage those things then life becomes a lot more interesting after knowing more about your background as a writer what interests you i want to know more about how you write your essays and your other works of literature like i've read your other publications and health journals and i noticed that you have this particular voice in writing you're warm gentle and in some ways quite elderly no offense um take that as a compliment because you know when you're elderly it's like you have a lot of wisdom so <laughs> kudos to you for that no, yeah no, you no. do you sound like you've gone through a lot and you're only what 20 in your early 20s late 20s but yeah yes. so yeah that's amazing so yeah, I feel like you have that warm, gentle, and elderly voice. So I want to know how you find your way in your essays, especially because your topics are and can be pretty dry, like death and medicine. So can you tell us more about that? So I guess I will preface this by saying that I'm in a pretty fortunate position where I no one's breathing down my neck to write. I spend a lot of time kind of walking around the world just thinking and if something strikes me then I write about it if not then it's fine um and a lot of the writing that I publish has actually come out of my journals um I tend to journal most days and use it as a way to reflect on what has happened that day and most of it's internal experience what has happened in my head um and I think that voice is pretty true obviously a polished form of of how I write in my kind of private journals. Um, that being said, I don't really have a method. Um, I kind of walk around life, experience things, am hit by it and go, hmm, fascinating. What was that? And then try to tease it out and read about what other people have said about similar things and kind of synthesize those. 
I find that it's almost parallel to how I do research, where I walk around, I look at numbers, and I say, hmm, interesting. Why do you think that is? And then explore it further, and we'll see what we get. Um, so there's no kind of end result when I start, and I kind of shape it along the way. I find that many drafts will will kind of come out of each um, of each uh, of each piece because the conclusion is not set when I start, and I kind of find my mm-hmm. way towards it. I find yeah, that yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting that you said that you really don't know where to end because you just find your way through the stories. And when you know that that's going to be the conclusion, you just stop there. So yeah. that's interesting. Um, so when do you know that that's the end that you want to achieve? So I think when I was younger, I struggled with the idea of getting something perfect, right? 10 out of 10. Um, but I find that in arts and increasingly in science perfect is an elusive goal and that if we hit a certain threshold of we're happy with this we're satisfied with this then then I'm, I'm, I'm ready to send it out but for me it's kind of a subjective thing where i read a piece of writing and if each sentence makes sense on its own and then each sentence makes sense in the context of the others and i'm pretty happy with that i realize that 100 percent is probably impossible to get or and is unrealistic and therefore if i I'm satisfied. I find that there's a conclusion to each piece that makes someone think, then then that's usually good enough for me. Um, in, in music, we have the idea of a cadence, and I like a pretty chilled out 1-5 cadence um, where the, um, I guess, 5-1 cadence, where the conclusion kind of wraps it up tightly. But... I find that if there is no clear answer and and instead a further direction with which the reader can take the ideas, that's probably what I'm happy with, happiest with. Like Oliver Sacks and Atul Gawande, who is also a professor, by the way, there at Harvard Med. Um, by any chance, no, were you no. able to... Yeah? We took a selfie in first year. <laughs> oh, wow! <laughs> that's so interesting! Like... I just listened to one of his episodes because he was featured on a podcast as well. And oh my gosh, I, I heard Harvard Med. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be talking to a Harvard Med student too. Wow. Dr. Gawande is a great guy. Um, oh, yeah, for... he, he does sound like he is. And his works are also similarly great. Um, yeah, great for you. Wow, that's that was, that's been a very cool experience. That what was it like? Interaction with him, by the way. We're not like texting friends or anything. I've taken a selfie yeah. with him. <laughs> yeah. Let me caveat that. <laughs> yeah, but you got that selfie. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, like Oliver Sacks and Atul Gawande, you write about your patients, your experiences at least with patients. And this can be difficult because you have to also respect their privacy by changing details or facts while trying to be as reliable of a narrator as you can be. So how has it been like getting to know your subjects, specifically um, patients or other people that you get to meet while you're a student and um, as like a practicing um, doctor, um, like, you know, in preparation for being a doctor? Um, What has it been like writing about them as honestly as you can be while balancing that with your need to change things up to keep their privacy? That's a really important question. And I think especially in the context of medical writing, when we, when we meet patients, we are bound by law. 
to protect their identities. You know, there are cases in which patients are more than willing to reveal who they are. And actually, many times they are. But if we, but for the most part, we either have to ask permission or we or we change things up to to protect their privacy. And I think that's the right thing to do, and the lawful thing to do. Um, but what I find that the reason that literature appeals to me is that the details of things like the age or even the gender or whatever, kind of based on what themes were going for, tend not to matter as much as the core truths that each encounter is trying to tell us. Um, and I find that, I guess, kind of two things going on, right? One is, one thing I really like about medicine and patient care in general is that as we get to know people, even if they're so wildly different from us, we see a piece of ourselves in the other. And I think that speaks to the kind of commonness of the human experience, but also it generates a sense of empathy where you see, oh, this person reminds me of something in myself or someone in someone I love or something in someone I love. Um, and that makes it easy to care for someone and to feel for them and to also kind of walk with them as they, as they, as they deal with suffering. But I think what that speaks to then is if there is a common ground between me, the provider and the writer and the patient as the teacher, I would argue, and also the one experiencing the illness. And we find something kind of in the, in the, in the intersection of that, of that set, um, to borrow from, from math language, then it doesn't really matter what the differences are of age of, of all these kind of details, identifiables, but instead that core experience where I find some truth that they are able to share with me and that I want to tease out for the author. So I think the truth is not the kind of, I would argue, mood points of, of the, um, of the, uh, of the privacy protected details, but instead a more universal human experience. And if something is universal, then by definition, it is anonymous because we all kind of share it. Right. Um, yeah. And so I find that the truth of each encounter kind of transcends the little details that I think we can do away with in defense of patient privacy. And I just want to add on to that because I also had this struggle when it came to writing about the situation and the story. So in an essay, right, mm -hmm. there are two parts of it, that there's the situation, which is what happens, and then the story, which is what you make out of what happened. True. And yeah, even our professor, um, who really taught us so well, by the way, said something that it doesn't matter if you write every single detail that happened on the event. It doesn't matter if you switch things up a bit, if you change things. Mm -hmm. But what matters is that what you learned from that experience and what you felt when you had that moment. And when you translate that into writing is the truth, then you've done a great job as being a reliable narrator. You don't have to get facts straight. But as long as you show that what you've learned and what you felt during that encounter is the truth, then you, you, you're already a good and a reliable narrator. So I'm, I'm glad you agree on that. You, you agree yeah. with that. Because honestly, I just want to point out that even if you're trying to be as factual as you can be, I mean, even as journalists, you can never be 100% objective. Like even in the language that we use, we either intensify or kind of diminish the value of that experience by using specific words like you know in newspapers you always see oh this guy was murdered or this guy was killed i mean murdered and killed are basically the same thing but hmm. just a few days ago we talked about this in class and then her professor said no when you say murdered it sounds really 
there should be that negative connotation. And then when you say it's skill, it's like, you know, so even if you're trying to be as subjective as you can be and journalists try to do that, you can never be 100% at the on-spot truth because, you know, it it doesn't even exist. Like the language we use and our perspectives on life are all different and are in many ways skewed to what we've experienced and how we're raised. So... Yeah, there is no truth to be honest. Um, you know, it, it's really complicated, and <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm kind of um, kind of sliding uh, in a different topic, but I just really wanted to point that out. And I think that's actually a really important point. Um, and in in again, in my kind of research oncology hat, right? When we do studies, whether it's treatment efficacy or retrospective studies or disparities, you know, all sorts of different things that require a measurement of some sort. We actually don't present things in terms of a straight number, right? We don't say, you know, this is the percent of people who who will survive. This is the amount of reduction of so-and-so biochemical marker that will tell us that there's efficacy. We tend to present things as confidence intervals or uncertainty intervals where from kind of borrowing from the world of statistics tells us the truth is somewhere in between this space. And I find that that's a pretty fitting metaphor for how I've come to realize or how I've come to believe that the world works, at least at this stage in my life, subject to change. Um, And the truth can often be somewhere in between kind of separate ends. And we only know that the truth lives there with a certain degree of certainty. Um, which I think is a humbling realization, but also one that makes it one that satisfies the curiosity in terms of how we look for how we look for things. Um, and I think yes, that can apply to survival rates, where you say that the true survival is somewhere between forty percent and sixty percent, with a ninety-five percent confidence, say. Or when we look at some understanding of a more kind of humanities-based idea, like love or death or hope. Um, and I find that in realizing that there's uncertainty and wiggle room for truth in either of the two, um, we are more honest with how we figure things out. And I think we're more open to learning from what the other has to say. An interesting dichotomy from kind of the history of thought, um, I'll borrow it from the French again, um, are, are two writers who I think are pretty different in their take of of of, of truth and reality. Um, I don't necessarily think they are in all cases diametrically opposed, but I think these quotes kind of suggest at least a dichotomy. One is um, Rene Descartes, who um, wrote at about a similar time as as, a, as, a, as Pascal, a bit earlier, I believe, where he is known for having said or written, give me mass and motion and I will construct you the universe. That says that, if you know several things about the world, if you know the base laws that govern the world, then you will be able to understand everything. But that is reliant upon the assumption that indeed there are immutable rules, which I think is an assumption that one must choose to make or not. And I think in contrast to that is Pascal, who says that the heart has its reasons that reason itself does not understand. And yes, he writes that in the context of religion, But I think that can be extrapolated to kind of the world more broadly, where there are things that, you know, reason, as it was defined in the Enlightenment, is only one way to make sense of the world. 
and that truth can be found elsewhere too. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, an interesting uh, observation, actually, you mentioned that you also kind of don't really pinpoint the true scale in science in your research as a prospective oncologist. Because I mean, that's science, you know. And we tend to we tend to believe that science is like all facts, and everything there is kind of you know the harsh cold truth, and it's not going to change. You know, it's it's just how it is. But you just talked about how even you in your research can't really explicitly say that, okay, this is the one. Like you you make this allowance for the extremes and the limits of where the truth may lie and not necessarily at one point. So that's very interesting. I mean, how often does that happen? Is it all the time or is it just in some rare cases? All of clinical medicine. Also, how's it been like so far? Did it did that experience change your previous notion about medicine, or did it reinforce that belief? Like, were, did you always think that way, or did that ex- did those experiences kind of change the way you perceive science to be like in medicine? I guess prior to medicine, I always knew that that was the case. Um, that science and reason is only one way of understanding the world, and that it, you know, one could argue that the only field that actually has like hard cold truth is math. Um, which which drew me to it kind of earlier when I was when I was younger. Um, but I find that it was interesting to begin to think of the world in probabilistic terms, which is how medicine how how we were taught how we are taught to think in medicine. But also, I think it's a pretty realistic way of looking at the world. Where if someone asks, "Does so and so cure or treat so and so?" We say, "Well, yeah," with a certain degree of certainty. Where we say there is a X percent chance that this will happen. Um, but we can never say for sure that something will save a life, will prolong a life. Because what does that actually mean? The more you delve into it, you look into biases like immortal time bias or kind of provide, um, 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 uh, recall bias and so on and so forth. That kind of nuance how we, how, we, how we interpret things. And I think what makes it exciting and also a bit scary is that we don't actually know. I mentioned hydroxychloroquine earlier in this um, in this. Uh, uh, in this uh, podcast, because it's funny that in I think February or March, when the big, uh, well, not big, but the early hydroxy, the earliest hydroxychloroquine study came out of France, it created this whole furor in um, in, uh, in 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 medicine and in the world, where people said, "Wow, you know, the what nineteen patients who were treated with hydroxychloroquine were cured, surprise." And people were people said, "Oh wow, you know, I guess this is the silver bullet that we that we were looking for for like however many months COVID was raging at that time." But and yes, the viral count in those patients did go down based on some chemical assay that we assume to be true. But the I think piece of bias that people didn't really consider was, well, if you didn't treat someone with anything, they they still could clear the virus. In fact, it's it's a thing that happens, right? That's what people who get better do. So there is a question as to whether or not this drug, this intervention, whatever, causes that improvement. And they didn't account for that. Um, and I think, I mean, obviously that was like a, not the best study in the world, but kind of more gold standard studies have shown that the effect is a lot less or close to nil that, that than we expected. But that also calls into question how something that we believe to be true in March can be defunct by October. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a humbling idea, but it's also a terrifying one. Um, I think what that kind of t- 
tying this back to the writing is that when people say, oh, you know, too much humanity stuff, you know, wh where's the actual truth there? I think if we step back and look at how biomedicine is done, you could say exactly the same thing, right? Like everything is still couched upon assumptions that we make. We believe that so-and-so tests are telling us the truth. We're believing that so-and-so measuring sticks are the right measuring sticks to use. We're saying that these measuring sticks work and that these assumptions, these goals are in fact good. How do you even define that? Um, and it, I mean, it keeps me, happy with the whole kind of research side of, of my life. But it also, I think, eases the distinction between objective and quote unquote subjective reality. There's a whole field of um, epistemology that, that that looks at this. Um, I, I do not have much training in epistemology at all. I wish I did. But it's the idea of studying how we know how we think we know what we know. Um, and even that has undergone change throughout human history. Um, one could argue that back in the day when scripture was the only truth that we had, people believed that every single thing that could be true was contained in, in, in the scripture. And indeed, there's people who still believe that. And there are people who swing the other way where they say science and only science. That's the only form of truth. And, you know, take that with a grain of salt. To what you said about the COVID-19 testing, like. Honestly, I also thought that by August or September, this would be over. Like most past um, epidemics that just took, I think, months to, to end. But yeah. for this one, I think, yeah, it's going to last for, I don't know, 2020 until 2021, I think. I read that somewhere. Even that we say with a confidence interval, right? People will say. Yeah, I, we can't just um, say something for sure because everything is changing um, and that just kind of debunks the idea of making plans, you know. And COVID really taught me the hard way that you can't always be a hundred percent sure about something. I very much agree with you, and I think that I mean I think most of the world kind of realize that, right? That like plans are plans are plans, but but we have to be able to modify our 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 lives kind of based on what what the world throws our way. And I think tying that back with medicine a little bit, is that a lot of the patients we encounter, especially for, for me in oncology, have to deal with that. People aren't often expecting a cancer diagnosis when they get one. And that upends many people's lives. And, you know, we who are fortunate to work with them, to be able to, to have the privilege to care for these people, the onus is on us to learn from these experiences, much in the same way that the world has chosen to learn from COVID or hopefully has chosen to learn from COVID. Um, but that, I think, should influence us to live in the present. Easier said than done, don't get me wrong. But that tells us that given that our plans could be foiled by a microscopic organism, well, not even, I don't by a microscopic thing, um, much in the same way that, kind of a bit taken to the extreme, right? But many patients with cancer's lives, their plans have been upended by a diagnosis. I think that makes it imperative to be deliberate and urgent in the choices that we make every day. I think COVID brought that to the kind of global consciousness. And my hope, and I don't know if this is going to be true, right, is that people learn from this episode of COVID in our own kind of collective history and say, okay, given that things can change in the blink of an eye, how then do we create meaning and happiness and 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 whatever else that, else that is that we you know, define value in life um, in the present time right now? Because this present time that we have might be all we get. 
Yeah, exactly. Thanks for that. Going back to your essay, in We the Dying, and also in your other publications, you wrote about a mom who was diagnosed with cancer and still had two little girls. Um, That was really very emotional to read. Um, And also your other essays, basically, in your essays about your patients, about your experience as a med student, you mentioned how you were taught to care for your patients at a safe distance, to not get emotionally or personally very attached to them. But in your essays, you write about them with so much love and care, and it shows so clearly so do you feel like you have to walk a line in doing this because of the contradicting aspects of your line of work and you're being a human who just can't help but care? So I think it, that is something that will probably change with time. Um, and I don't know how it will change in me yet because I haven't lived that time yet. Um, but I think I would hazard that it is correct to apply a certain degree of love and to open our hearts for that when we take care of patients, especially those who are suffering the most. It. I've, I say that not because it's something that I excel at, whatever I do every day. No, I don't know. I'm a trainee, right? But it's something that I've seen in the people I look up to the most. Um, I will speak for what I've seen in many of my mentors, where the way they care for their patients is how they would care for their own family. The way they stick up for their patients, whether it's to make sure that the patient has a paid-for ride home or free parking. The way that they think about those things when the patients come in to get radiation treatment, for, for example tells me that there is a certain degree of love that goes into, into the care that they provide, number one. Number two, the way that I've seen people open up to patients and say, well, here's how I've experienced this, is also some form of love because it tells it tells the, the patient, it communicates with the patient that you are not alone in this. And I think that's so important. That's a huge part of what we do, where our goal is, yes, administer treatment, yes, teach them what 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 the next steps are. But another piece of it is to walk with the patient and say, you are not alone in this. And I think that is an extremely powerful message. Now, in terms of how that impacts the provider and how that affects our happiness, our state, I think, I don't know if this is an idealist, if, if this is kind of me as an idealist, kind of young trainee saying this, but I think we owe it to them. If the patients come to us with their vulnerability, we should share that with them. And so, yes, I think some folks could argue that you have to steal yourself to that emotion. And I think, yeah, we have to a certain degree we should so that we can remain careful in how we choose, you know, treatments um, and work the technical side because that's what we're also trained to do. But I think a certain degree of feeling with and for the patients is necessary in making someone a good doctor. I think it's interesting to also discuss how being 100% involved with a patient can sometimes hamper your relationship with your actual family or your actual friends um do you ever feel that yeah have you ever thought of that like you know you're just always always worrying about your patient especially obviously because they're in a more fragile state than let's say your family or friends who are perfectly healthy and all that um so yeah i just want to get your say on that if you get really really involved and very and attached with a patient than you would be with your family. So I would argue that it actually does kind of the opposite, right? Like I've, I've written about this extensively and I think this is this is something that I hold to be one of the biggest like privileges and gifts of medicine is that we understand what it means to, to lose people before it is our turn to do so. And I think it's made me a better family member, at least a better friend in seeing that life can change in the blink of an eye. I think that's the big lesson here, right? 
like the more we engage, the more we stare death in the face. And death, I don't mean death necessarily as the physical dying, right? I mean death as the death of our ability to run, death of our ability to listen, to see, um, you know, to, to, to think. I think that and of, you know, oftentimes things that precede bodily death. I think that if interpreted in a way that I would recommend people is something that should influence us to be better at home. Like, yeah, we are supposed to be able to come home with sadness, with grief for a patient who's died or who's going to die. But I think that should make us look at the people that we love and say, oh, it is with more force that I will love you. Because of the cognizance that life is short. And that, I mean, I think that's pretty you know, simple things, right? Like call my mom and my dad every day. Um, because I realize that, and I'm proud to say that, right? Um, because in caring for people who are their age, it gives me fear, but also it gives me a stronger sense of duty to love them. Yeah, I just want to tie it in with what we talked about earlier, that, okay, maybe it made you feel that way. You made, made you feel like you have to love everyone as much as you can because time is running out. But on the contrary, like for other people, it might not be like, if you know that death is inevitable and you know how much pain it can cause your loved ones, you might not want to go through that pain and just stop caring at all. And I think a very good example of this is Doctor Strange. I don't know if you've seen the film. I have not. But you haven't? I have not. Oh, no. <laughs> but, very, very I mean, Anyway, you. yeah, That's if you're interested, <laughs> I think you can check it out. Because Doctor Strange is a surgeon. Um, neurosurgeon, I believe. Yeah. And so, yeah, he knows that there are obviously death is inevitable and that people who who are attached to a person who, who just died can sometimes be very, get very broken by that death. And so he chooses to just live alone. Like he's not in touch with family, friends. He doesn't even date, like zero um personal relationships like but he's a very good doctor he's on the news all the time so he's very successful in terms of career but then obviously in his personal life like he chooses not to be in touch with them because he knows that if he gets too close to someone and when they die he's gonna get broken like what he sees in his patient so yeah i just want to tie that back with what we talked about earlier that it's different for everyone and it's good that it it's that way for you because your parents must be very very happy um and it's not always that a son would call his parents every day so what it's been like especially since you've been studying abroad since college at Yale, right yeah I, I think i think it's a couple things right like homesickness was a big part of kind of early college years um i miss being with my parents i miss seeing my sister a lot she's my best friend um and um and i think that was tough and that's tough for everyone but at the same time, it's something that I think it gives way for opening one's heart for friends. Um, I have some of the best friends in the world, the best friends in the world, who are my family as well. Um, and I think it, I think one finds that there's love to be found elsewhere too. And that does not diminish the love, the connection, the space in my in my in my heart for 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 my family. But it also makes, it also creates for the opposite of loneliness, right? I find that that's point number one. Point number two is that the world becomes a lot smaller prior to COVID. The world becomes a lot smaller with technology, with the ease with which you can fly. And I, I think that's something that I'm fortunate to, not everybody has that, and I'm very fortunate that I'm able to kind of zip around the world and and and, and see my family when I can. Um, and I find that 
this is something I tell a lot of people who are gonna who are gonna go abroad. Um, is that you will have friends in so many different cities. Your world will expand, and you're lucky. You know, make the most of it. But at the same time, but at the same time, your heart will be spread out in different places, and it's probably never gonna be whole again. Um, because because you you know, I have some of my, my best friends in the world are from like three, four, five different continents, right? Um, and that makes for interesting travel in especially the pre-COVID era, but and hopefully the post post-COVID era. But it also, you know, it's it's hard to get all my people in one place. In fact, when my high school friends or my grade school friends or my college friends or med school friends meet, I always get shocked at kind of how worlds collide. Um but I think the third piece of it is that instead of tearing apart the connection between me and my loved ones, my family. I think it just strengthens it because it tells us that like, hey, even despite the distance, it's 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 the same, it's, it's still strong. Um, there's a there's a, a beautiful line by John Donne, who's a who's a an old English poet, um, who writes about a trip that he's about to go on, um, and he's leaving, I believe it was his wife behind, um, and he's going to travel for a bit, and he says, "Our two souls, therefore, which are one, endure not yet a breach, but an expansion." Like gold to airy thinness beat. That's one of my favorite lines in all of in all of uh, literature, where that I've seen, um, where he says that if there is a connection that is so strong, then time and space don't necessarily break it; it expands it. If indeed it is gold. I'd also love to share this poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. And it's interesting how it starts very playfully, very fun, and ends with the last line. So the last line is, we die soon. Hmm. And I remember reading that and it just sent chills down my spine. Like, how can something start so fun, so innocent and end with something that's very heartbreaking? It kind of, to me, it ties up with just life in general. Like, death can come and really just ruin everything at one point like without any notice most of the pieces of literature that really 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 resonate with me and really stick with me for a long time are mm. the ones that really make me think and really make me question my previous thoughts your essay did that i'm honored that that's the case um that i think is 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 part parcel of why i do this um, because my hope is not to provide answers i don't think i i have the answers nor do i have the right to to, to know them at this like relatively young age, but my hope is to get readers to actually think about stuff and to come at their own truths. Um, there's a you know you, you bring up an interesting point about kind of that that poem that, that ends um, and we die soon, um, and kind of to kind of reiterate that point that this is something that people have grappled with for like all of humanity essentially. I'll quote you a little bit of Rilke again. Um, sorry, I keep using the same the same. Same German writing. Um, but in his uh, earlier work called The Book of Hours, which is essentially a long prayer in poem form, he ends it on the following very short line. In fact, it's a poem that is just a verse, single verse. And I think it says so much of, of, of um, how I've chosen to think about life and death and how I, how I actively attempt to live. You know, I don't know if I do that perfectly. I, I argue that I don't. Um, but he says, Give us each our own death. Grant us the dying that comes forth from a life in which we knew love, grappled with meaning, felt need. Wow, I don't even know what to say. Hello? 
Yeah, I'm here. That's the importance of facing mortality, and you know, it, it's come it's come up in many forms, right? Like in the in the Christian tradition, we are so open to the idea of dying. In fact, it is taught to us as a transition, and therefore it should influence how we live. In in, in various kind of more, I guess, meditative traditions, they say contemplate your existence, right? What does that actually mean? To realize that your existence is finite and to have that influence how you choose to live. And I think, you know, that's what the main, many kind of either philosophical or religious kind of schools of thought have grappled with. That's something that we know for sure that our, this thing we call our experience of life, this consciousness, right, will come to pass. How then do we make the most of the time that we have? Yeah, it's something that I think a lot about. If it's any reassurance, I, I don't think anyone ever has the answer. Oh, your essay just kind of made me think more about that. When I saw the title, We the Dying, I was like, what? <laughs> and so that really intrigued me. And I thought it was going to end with a negative tone. It was going to end with a very kind of depressing note. But on the contrary, it kind of contradicted that negative sound from the title. And it ended yeah. with something that really made me think and really made me feel like death could actually be a good thing. Um and so it, I would say that you did a really great job at achieving that goal of yours that you talked about of making people think through your writing. And so I want to end this conversation with a question. What is something that you want people to think more about? Two conclusions kind of come out, right? The first is that it is important to think about life. I think the more we pause and reflect and try to figure out what, what the data are telling us, really, and the data being kind of our connection with other people, our experience of the day-to-day and so on and so forth, I think that makes life more interesting and it also guides how we make our choices in the future. Um, that's point number one. And I think that's tied in with the fact that life is so interesting. There's so much in it, right? And, and for me, that's one of the great tragedies of, 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 of the certainty of death, right? That there's so much else. There's so many other lives that we could have lived and other things that we could have experienced. Um, and even in a small scale, there's a tragedy of COVID. Like we, all, all the plans that have, that have been um, upended, right? all the things that could have happened, um, I think, number one. Number two is, I think, what the implications are for how we choose to live. And for me, my two biggest takeaways are the importance of urgency and being deliberate in how we make our choices. I think being deliberate is tied in with the idea of thinking a lot, where we say, okay, here's why we do what we do. You know, We don't do things at random, or maybe we shouldn't do things at random. We should understand what motivates our actions and then act accordingly. And then the second is urgency, which is a little bit kind of with, you know, in, in tension with, with, with the idea of being deliberate in that time is running. We have to make our decisions now and we have to choose to act as we see fit now. Um, you know, the it's the opposite of beating around the bush, really, where we say, okay, what are these things in which we believe? What are these things that we have come to agree upon as our truth? Let's act accordingly and do that now. Um, and I think the certainty of death makes that urgency piece even more important. Whether it's a small thing, right? Like calling my parents now, right? Or calling my sister now, or seeing my friends now. And in understanding why we do that, because we know that life is short. We know that things end. I think that makes for a lot more rich experience of, of, of this time we call life. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was a very beautiful message. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. I, I had a lot of fun um, thinking about this and preparing uh, and preparing this and, and working with you as well.
Edward Christopher, or Christie, was born and raised in Quezon City, Philippines. He is a fourth-year medical student at Harvard and is planning to go into oncology. In his writing, Chris uses patient stories to ask larger questions of meaning. Ideas he has explored include lessons from patients who face terminal illness, the opportunity to see parts of ourselves amongst those most ostracized by society, and the role of discussing the impact of love with patients to facilitate communication and healing. This has been the Youngblood Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions as to which works to feature on our next episodes, please feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or to DM us on Instagram. We're also on other social media platforms like LinkedIn and Twitter, so if you want, please go ahead and give us a follow. We appreciate each and every one of you. I'd also like to thank everyone who's been with us since day one. You guys are the real heroes behind this podcast. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Thank you very much. This has been Lee Angela Schalko. Thanks for listening. Until next time.